0: This story and all that Jesus holds out to Nicodemus and all that John puts in front of us is inexhaustible, like every passage of Scripture. We're not going to exhaust it by going through it twice, but I thought it was worth going through for two passes to see two different things because this is so foundational to what John wants us to grasp about the ministry of Jesus, the gospel that he brings. Little Christians, this morning as we go back through a portion of John 3, we're going to revisit the idea that you need to be changed. We saw that last week. And this week we're going to see that change worked out in, seen in, new faith. And so here's what I want you to think about and answer for yourself as you listen to the passage and as you listen to the sermon. What does Jesus give us to believe about himself. In this passage, he will tell Nicodemus several things that are supposed to be believed and trusted. I want you to see if you can list out at least one or two, maybe even three of those things. This is the good news of Jesus as he holds himself out to a Pharisee and as John holds the story out to us as his church. John 3, verses 1 through 21 because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of hearing your word again. We ask for the grace of your Spirit to help us believe, not just to apprehend what these things mean, that we need his help to do that too, but the work of your Spirit in us, grabbing hold onto these things and trusting them and believing them like our lives depend on it because they do. Father, we ask that you would do these things for us. We cannot believe these things on our own apart from your Spirit's work. And we would have nothing to believe if it weren't for your Son coming in the flesh, all that he has been, all that he has done, and all that he is for us. So we ask that you would do these things. Give us faith and let us see clearly who Jesus is, all that he is for us. Let us love and trust Him and rest in Him and find our belonging in Him and Him alone. We ask that you do these things for your own glory, for the glory of your Son and the glory of the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I made a passing reference to it last week. When you come into this passage, there's a tremendous irony that Nicodemus comes to talk with Jesus at night. Now that we've seen more of the passage, Jesus actually highlights it for him by the time you get to the end. That little lecture that Jesus gives about the light coming into the world and people loving darkness, people rejecting light, not wanting to be exposed by it. That's not just Jesus waxing eloquent and talking about things in the abstract. Remember that while he says this, it's pitch black outside. While he says this, he's talking to a man who came to him in the darkness because he didn't want the meeting to be seen. The real irony is that Nicodemus has come to the light of the world, as John refers to Jesus in chapter 1. He comes to the light of the world in darkness. The light of the world converses with him, And he's blind to it. He's blind to it the whole way through the conversation, it feels like. So Nicodemus comes to the light of the world, and Jesus tells him in that first statement, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, meaning you cannot perceive the kingdom of God, as if he was saying to Nicodemus, you wouldn't understand or perceive the kingdom of God, if he were standing right here in front of you, talking to you this very night, if you were asking questions of the kingdom of God come in flesh, you wouldn't know it. And Nicodemus doesn't. And so as readers, especially as believing readers, as the church reading John's gospel, we're privy to all of this. We're in on the joke. We can hear and feel all of the irony of Nicodemus's trip under the cover of darkness to hide their meeting, to poke and prod and ask questions of Jesus, and Jesus to consistently tell him, I can answer these things for you all you want. If you are not changed, you won't understand any of them. You don't understand who you're talking with now. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't answer him. And so we get to hear his answers, and the beautiful thing for us is, We haven't come in the dark. We haven't come to Jesus in this passage at night. Jesus, the light of the world, has brought us out of darkness into his light. And so now we can see the passage clearly. We can see the things that are going on clearly if we have been changed. If we have the change we talked about all last week, If the Spirit really has taken our dead hearts and made them alive, then these things aren't hidden to us. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus all that we said last week. By way of summary, I'll just remind you that the movement of the Spirit is invisible. You can't predict where it comes from, you can't control it, but it comes in and you get to hear the effects of it. And John tells the story so that we don't get to hear the effects in Nicodemus until chapter 7, when he makes a comment about Jesus' right to trial. And much later, in 19, after the crucifixion, when he actually loves Jesus and comes to bury him with Joseph of Arimathea. Our experience as readers is meant to trail Nicodemus' own experience. You can't hear the moving of the Spirit, and you don't get to hear the effects of it in Nicodemus for several chapters. But that doesn't mean the promise isn't held out. That doesn't mean the promise isn't good. That doesn't mean this isn't good news for Nicodemus when it's first explained, even if he squints and struggles to see the kingdom of God. And so in the rest of the passage, the part that we've expanded to this week Last week we read the end of chapter 2 and the first eight verses of this discussion, primarily emphasizing the Spirit's movement, the necessity and the sovereignty of the Spirit in changing us for any of these things to take root in us and for any of these things to make sense and belong to us. And now in the section we've expanded into, verses 9 through 21, Jesus expands his address to Nicodemus into an address to the church as a whole. It starts off as this private discussion that Nicodemus contrived and made private. But you can even see hints of it in the first part. Nicodemus comes to him and says, We know that you're a teacher come from God. We, meaning other people Nicodemus knows, probably Pharisees. And so, in the larger part of the passage, as Jesus goes on, he moves it from a private discussion. Several times he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you right now, truly, truly, I'm telling you, Nicodemus, these things. And then as we get into verses 11 and 12, he changes it. 11 reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, that we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, and you, Nicodemus, do not receive our testimony. And then in 12, Jesus broadens the whole thing. This is no longer a private matter. You're no longer eavesdropping on just a private discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. In 12, he moves the U's to y'all. Truly, truly, I say to y'all, I have told y'all earthly things, and y'all do not believe. How can y'all believe if I tell y'all heavenly things? Jesus now backs up and brings into the discussion the context of everything he's preached, everything he's taught, all the signs he's demonstrated, not just with Nicodemus privately, Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night in the dark because he's afraid and ashamed, most likely. And the other irony is Jesus says, I've done all these things openly out in the light. I have nothing to hide. I'm not afraid of condemnation because I'm the beloved son. And so I do these things out in the open. Jesus brings into the conversation all the things he's done out in the light. There is no secret handshake in their discussion. There are no secret events in their discussion. Jesus brings into their discussion the totality of his ministry and his life among the people. John said, he became flesh and dwelled among us and we have seen his glory And so Jesus makes reference to all of that. Not just privately, Nicodemus. Everyone's seen this. I am the same with you and everyone else. I have no deep, dark secrets to tell you. These are the things I've been doing. These are the things I've been teaching. You've heard them before. The problem isn't knowledge. The problem isn't instruction and explanation. The problem is belief. I've said these things to you before. I've spoken of these things before. I've explained them every way I can in earthly terms, to try and help you get a hold of them. And the problem is, apart from the work of the Spirit, you can't grab hold of them and believe them and understand them. And the jab is not a terribly barbed insult. But Jesus puts it to him pretty bluntly in verse 10. You're a teacher of the Jews. You know the Old Testament better than most. And you still don't understand these things? We're talking about the stuff we know. You and me, Nicodemus. You and me and my disciples and all of your colleagues. These are not hidden scriptures. These aren't decoding the text type questions. This is not a Da Vinci Code event. I'm telling you the things that have always been taught. I am the fulfillment of all the promises that have come to you... You're supposed to know them and you don't, and that's the tragedy. And so Jesus makes a second loop in their discussion. It's part of why I thought it would be fitting to have two rounds of this discussion in sermons. Jesus makes one pass through them, explains them, And then in verse 9, Nicodemus says, but how can these things be? And So Jesus moves from the general statements about the Spirit and new birth to explain what that looks like. Just like we said last week, you don't see the wind, you can't predict the wind, you can't control the wind, and you can't do those things with the Holy Spirit, but you can hear the sound of it. And when Nicodemus questions him, how can these things be? What we have in the rest of our passage is Jesus explaining, this is what it sounds like. It's not left up for your private interpretation, Nicodemus. This is the sound of the Holy Spirit blowing through and rushing through the souls of God's people. So Jesus moves from this essential change, this change of essentially who we are and what we are, to the essential faith that belongs to that change. Jesus moves it from questions of spirituality and real spirituality into discernibly, objectively, particularly, what is real spirituality? What does it believe? So Jesus tells him three things very plainly. He talks to him in terms of abiding faith. John makes this case throughout the rest of his book and has been making this case through his book. This is the way John talks about believing. It's not this all of a sudden explosion of faith. It's not this one time, this one time profession. It is an enduring, ongoing, trust for the long haul type of faith. Doesn't mean it doesn't doubt, doesn't mean it doesn't waver, doesn't mean it comes fully formed, doesn't mean it doesn't grow. But the way that Jesus talks about faith with Nicodemus here, the way that John describes and illustrates faith through the entirety of his gospel, is not just reading a gospel tract and going, sure, why not? It's not just hearing a call to believe once and signing down at the bottom line. John describes what Jesus taught very plainly. This faith abides... And it abides ongoing in the life of those who have really apprehended it and undergone this essential change of the Spirit. There is an instantaneous work of the Spirit, but if it really takes place, then this fruit remains. This fruit of faith keeps on going. And again, that doesn't mean that it won't doubt. That doesn't mean that it's fully formed when it comes. It doesn't mean it's fully mature. It doesn't mean it won't struggle doesn't mean it won't grow. But all of those are the particulars of what it looks like for it to endure, for it to be tested and pressed and leaned on, for its weakness to be exposed, and for the Spirit to uphold it. All of those things are the ongoing life of faith. If you could say it this way, Jesus talks about needing to be born again. And he goes on to explain, if the Spirit really does His work in you so that you are regenerate, so that you are born again, inwardly and spiritually, you will stay alive in this birth. You will grow up and mature in this new birth. Just like your physical birth gave you life, and just like you grow and mature and fill out and all that you were at your birth so the spiritual birth takes hold and grows like that and so Jesus explains what is to be enduringly believed but before we move on I'll give you one one example of it there are lots of examples we use to talk about faith and trust that are legitimate to an extent when we talk about the nature of the trust, but they miss all of, the, all of the endurance, all of the abiding, all of the permanent quality of this new faith that's given. So we talk about trusting a chair by sitting in it. Well, that's true, but it takes like that long. Discipleship is not just the event of sitting down. It's not just the event of leaning on something once and trusting it to be there and catch you. It's not a trust fall, despite what anyone at a ropes course has told you. It's not even best illustrated, though it's slightly better illustrated, by Felix Baumgartner. Some of you know who he is. Chad brought this to my attention this week in the office. Uh, Chad Scruggs, RUF at SMU, offices with us, and he walked out. Interrupted a conversation and said, What do you think about this guy that's jumping out of an airplane or out of a pod in space? I had no idea what he's talking about, like most of you don't know what I'm talking about now. Red Bull sponsored, is sponsoring a seven year NASA type mission to put a guy in a pod hung underneath a giant 55 story tall helium balloon and send him into the stratosphere 23 miles above the Earth's surface in a pressurized suit and have him jump out in free fall for 20 minutes before opening his chute. It's scheduled for today, so we'll see how it goes. It feels a little bit like NASA and a fraternity prank put together. Red Bull, the energy drink company that puts together the soapbox derby, orange crate derby flying machine thing where the people go off of the ledge and into the water in things that are not seaworthy and will not fly, actually hired meteorologists and engineers and former astronauts to develop a suit that this guy can wear jump out 23 miles above the earth's surface and just plummet until he breaks the sound barrier with nothing but a thick suit. It will take a lot of faith for Felix to open that door and actually jump. It's like standing on top of the high dive when you were a little kid and deciding whether or not you were actually going to jump, but like 23 miles higher than that. (laughs) That will take tremendous faith. That has a tremendous buildup. There are a lot of things that work well as an analogy. Out of that, for us, and at the same time, he'll either jump or he won't. And once he jumps, the trust issues are over. You can't go back. It's not like he's going to make a habit of this. This is not going to become his routine. And discipleship becomes our routine. Living in faith the way John describes it, the way Jesus describes it to Nicodemus, is more than just plummeting out of a helium balloon. It is the ongoing, abiding trust and rest, even when we're assailed with doubt, even when we're weighed down with guilt, even when questions come and nag at us, It's a little bit of a pessimistic way to say it, but there's a real beauty to the fact that once you are reborn, you can't shake free of this faith even when you want to. And there's a beautiful assurance in that. There are times you and I want to disbelieve it. We want to close the pod and not jump out of it. We want to stop belonging. We want to stop living like this. We want to stop depending on someone else like this the real beauty of this work of the Spirit is that you don't have that option. He pulls you through it until you can see the goodness of it again. And that's what this enduring faith is supposed to look like. That's the way Jesus paints it for Nicodemus, and that's the way John builds it throughout the rest of his gospel. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus that those who believe in the Son like that, those who go on believing, those who keep on believing in the Son, not just a momentary profession, but really abiding and living in and growing in that kind of faith, they have eternal life. Their life is eternal because the work of the Spirit is unflinching and eternal in them. And so Jesus moves to even more particulars. This is not just faith in the abstract. He tells Nicodemus, and John is telling us, it has two very distinct aspects. There is a content to our faith. There are doctrines, just like we took, or just like the barbers took their uh, baptismal vows for Wyatt a moment ago. Will you teach him the doctrines of your holy religion? There are facts, there are doctrines, there are truths, beautiful truths about this Jesus that exist outside of us. And whether we believe them or not, they exist and are true. And Jesus holds several of those out to him. He talks about himself in light of the incarnation. Verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven. No one has a right to explain these things to you because no one has ever seen these things firsthand in the throne room of God. Well, except for one person. And he's standing here talking to you, Nicodemus. It's the one who descended, the one who the Father sent down from heaven, the Son of Man. And so he couches his whole proclamation in terms of the incarnation. And then he moves straight to an Old Testament story of Moses putting a serpent up in the wilderness so that people could look to it and be healed from sickness that they were afflicted with by the curse of God. And he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And the lifted up is meant to be understood in terms of that picture, the serpent up on the staff. Jesus hung on a tree, hung on a cross. So that those, as he says later in the passage, who are already condemned, those who are already afflicted and ill, those who already live under the curse, the curse that came to Adam and Eve, and all of their descendants in Genesis 3, those who are already cursed and condemned, can look to him hung there, sacrificed in their place, as John said earlier, before our confession of sin. This perfect sacrifice. So Jesus preaches to him the incarnation and the crucifixion side by side. Nicodemus, you're going to have to understand me. Not just the words I say, not just the quality of my teaching. You're going to have to understand who I am in terms of where I've come from and where I'm going. You're going to have to understand me in terms of my incarnation that it is God in the flesh, God and man standing here talking with you, and you're going to have to understand me in terms of my crucifixion, my sacrifice, my death, in your place, because you should die under the curse of God, and I'm going to die as that curse for you. The statements are compact. They're riddled with Old Testament imagery. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the Jews, you're supposed to know these things anticipate these things, and you should have already believed them, but you can only do that with the work of the Spirit. And this abiding, enduring faith is going to include these objective realities that exist outside of you. And then he moves to one more aspect of this enduring faith. Nicodemus, this faith is enduring, it is ongoing, it is for those who really believe and keep on believing and can't let go of it by the Spirit's grace. And it is in the content of who I am and what I have done and will do for you. And the next piece is a little more subtle in our passage. It's a subtle refrain all through John's gospel. We've mentioned it before in these sermons. John consistently talks about faith in Jesus in terms of believing into... To put it awkwardly, this is the way John says it, believing into him, believing into his name. You see the parallel of it in last week's passage in those verses, those last few verses of uh, chapter 2. When it says that many started to believe in him is the sense of it, but he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew it was in them. The parallel draws out and makes explicit What John implies all the way through in this awkward language of believing into Jesus, believing into His name, it's not only believing these objective external facts about Him. It's not only buying into the story of who He is and what He does. This enduring, unassailable, undiminishable, inexhaustible faith, this faith that the Spirit produces in God's people... Includes and affirms all of this content about who Jesus is. But it also includes believing or entrusting, would be a better way to say it, entrusting ourselves to Him. Taking all that we have and all that we have not to offer other than sin and brokenness and need and putting ourselves in His sovereign, loving hands and saying, we can't carry ourselves where we need to go. We need you to carry us. We need to believe about you, yes, but we actually need to believe ourselves into your hands. We need to entrust ourselves into who you are. Jesus, we can't take care of ourselves. We need you to take care of us. This is what happens when your children believe you like this. Your children believe all kinds of things about you, good and bad, by the way. But they believe all kinds of things about you, but they actually entrust themselves to you when they are desperately needy or hurt or sad or scared, and they run to you without thinking, and they just want to be held. They just need to be carried. They just need to be protected. They just need to be cared for. Whatever it is they need, they give themselves into your arms. They entrust themselves to you. The life of your children, especially when they're young, looks like that routinely. Daily, entrusting themselves to you. Mom, we can't feed ourselves. I know you get tired of hearing them ask for dinner. But they can't feed themselves, so they entrust themselves to you by asking you to feed them. When they're scared at night, they can't protect themselves, so they entrust themselves to you by crying out and coming to you for protection and safety. When they're hurt and made fun of and lonely and disregarded at school or by their friends or even their siblings, they entrust themselves to you when they say, I have no belonging of my own. I'm not loved on my own. Please love me. Please tell me you will never disown me. They entrust themselves to you for love and care and belonging. And so in all of the pictures that John will unpack through the rest of his gospel, you'll get snapshots of all those different types of entrusting. We've already had one piece of it back in John 2. When Jesus turned the water into wine, remember I said, they were entrusting themselves to him in that story very specifically. They were entrusting themselves to him to be their celebration and rejoicing, to take all the purification they need and make it a festival as John builds his story through the rest of the gospel, you will see different aspects of it, different needs, different fulfillments, different ways that we entrust ourselves to Jesus. And you can and should read all of those summed up in the way that Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to entrust yourself to me. You have to believe certain things about me, but more than just objective facts, more than just some kind of Scantron exam, the final exam in some class, you're going to have to, in some ongoing way, day by day and week by week, entrust yourself to me, Nicodemus. You're going to have to give yourself into my sovereign and loving hands. The world is going to have to give itself into my sovereign and loving hands. And whoever does that, whoever does that, Nicodemus, they are really spiritual. They are really born by the Spirit. They are really essentially changed. This is what the sound of the wind is like. This is what its effects look like. This kind of ongoing, enduring faith, particularly wrapped up in who Jesus is and what He's done, and just as particularly, just as enduringly entrusting itself to Jesus for everything. So Jesus finishes, and John finishes the story at this point in John 3. Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night, hidden and secret, to ask him questions about real, real spirituality. And Jesus has answered him, real spirituality looks like new life imparted. And yes, it gets grown invisibly and inwardly But the wind of God's Spirit blowing through the souls of his people has a very particular sound, Nicodemus. It has a very particular sound, New St. Peter's. God's people are never left as vaguely and unidentifiably spiritual. It is not just people with a little something extra, that special aura or that deeper connection. Jesus is saying this work of the Spirit is a deeper connection to the Father, but its effects are distinct and they're specific. It works out in abiding lifelong trust in Jesus and trusting ourselves to him for everything. Not just forgiveness. Yes, forgiveness, but also for purpose and for joy and to define what holiness looks like for us. That entrusting looks like praying to him and asking him to produce that holiness in us. It means that we want the belonging that he offers with himself to the Father. On his terms, but by his grace. So Jesus says, do you want real spirituality? If you hear nothing else, you should read this passage and hear Jesus asking you. John, putting the question to you, do you want real spirituality? Then you need this kind of essential change. And you listen for this sound of the wind blowing with this kind of faith. This is the goodness of Jesus, the ministry of His Spirit ongoing in His people. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for holding out to us the disturbing news that we cannot change ourselves holding out to us the disturbing news that we need this kind of change and we need this kind of Savior, that we are this desperate and this needy. And by Your grace, You never leave Your proclamation there. It is never a declaration of judgment that comes over us. You don't flinch and You tell us plainly that on our own we would be judged. But in the grace of Jesus in His incarnation, in His death in our place, in His resurrection that we will see later in this gospel. Salvation is held out to us fully. And even there, you overcome our need and our desperation and our inability by the inward work of your Spirit. Let us hear the sound of His wrestling in us. Blow through your church with the wind of your Spirit. Let this faith take hold in places and in hearts it has not yet. Let us see new profession, and not just new profession, but new life, new joy, new purpose, new holiness, new belonging. Let us see all of these things and celebrate them along with you. You are good to us. Let us praise you for it. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.